So, but we are today in lesson 27 of the study of the book of Hebrews. And uh, this week's lesson finds us in the middle of chapter 9. I'm going to try and get through this chapter today. But we get some confusing verses here, particularly when we get to six, verse 16. We'll start reading from verse 15. For this reason, Messiah is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while... The one who made it is still living. So this verse is a little confusing, uh, verse 16, because it would seem that the author is comparing a will and a covenant. And they're not really apples for apples. However, if we read the Young's literal translation, we're going to find that correctly translated, it doesn't speak of a will at all. It reads this way. And because of this, of a new covenant, he is mediator, that Death, having come for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, those called may receive the promise of the age during inheritance. For for where a covenant is, the death of the covenant victim to come, it is is necessary. For For a covenant over dead victims is steadfast, since it has no force at all when the covenant victim liveth. And so, as you can see, if we get rid of the term will, it becomes a little more clear to what the author is saying. And just to make it really simple, he's saying that without death and without blood, there is no covenant. Ancient covenants were sealed with offerings. And we can see this in the Bible in many places. Abraham and God making a covenant and having the animals in two, passing between the halves. So the author's point is that just as blood was shed to institute the Sinai covenant, so too, if there is to be a new covenant, then blood must be shed. There must be a life offered at the institution of this new covenant. And in this case, the Messiah's offering brought the forgiveness of sins committed under the first covenant. This forgiveness of sins was needed so that you could be a part of the new covenant. For as Jeremiah said, uh, God would remember the sins no more. There's no way, no provision under the first covenant, the Sinai covenant, for that to happen. To restore man into the internal right standing with God. The author made that clear in verse 13 of chapter 9 when he said, The blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who ceremonially unclean to sanctify them so that they were outwardly clean. And then in chapter 10 he tells us more. He says in verse 1, he says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, they would, not, would they not have been stopped being offered? For the worshiper would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilt for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible 
for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sin. Under the terms of the first covenant made with God, everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. And there's no method in the terms of that first covenant for people to be completely reconciled to God. You could not go to a priest and say, listen, I'm really tired of having to bring these sin offerings. I want just to bring one more offering that would reconcile me to God once and for all. And while we're at it, let's make this offering so wonderful that it would keep me in good standing, not only through this life, but also in the one to come. At least I've never read that. It's impossible under the law. The offerings in the scriptures were to make sure you were in right standing with the covenant community of Israel, but in no way gave you internal right standing before God. You see, our God is eternal, and a true right standing means that you can go before him, you can draw near to God. That wasn't possible for anyone to do. The high priest went before the earthly manifestation of God's present in an earthly copy of his true dwelling, the tabernacle. And then he only went once a year. And the high priest truly was able to draw near to God. Because to truly draw near to God, you must enter into his true dwelling place, that eternal dwelling place. And the fact is that eternal life is not found anywhere in the Torah. For that matter, there is no resurrection to eternal life found in the Torah. Listen to what the encyclopedia says. The, the standard biblical view of death took it as man's final state. Aside from such anomalies as Enoch and Elijah who were taken by God, the common lot of all men as it, is, as it was then conceived, is aptly described in Job 7, verses 7 through 9. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will not again see good. A cloud dissolves and is gone. So is the one who descends to Sheol, he will not ascend. The idea of a resurrection proper makes its first clear and datable appearance, datable appearance in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1. Two and three. And so what the article is seen is there's no, no mention of a resurrection in the Torah. For that matter, there's no clearly stated uh, uh, mention of a Messiah in the Torah. Alluded to, yes. Messiah is alluded to as early as Genesis chapter 3. And that's why the first century Sadducees, who, I might add, were priests, did not believe in Messiah or a resurrection because they took a very literal view of the Torah. The point being is that there's no offering for eternal reconciliation to God in the Torah. There's no path back to the Garden of Eden stated in the Torah. And that's what Yeshua offered. He offered the way. What Yeshua offered and the new covenant offers is eternal reconciliation. And that is why his disciples called themselves the way. He, they had found the way. What Yeshua offers is forgiveness and a new relationship with God. Through the forgiveness of sin, he's able to offer a covenant whereby the one who accepts him and his offering is restored into true right standing with God. A right standing that is spoken of in the book of Revelations, chapter 22 and 20, 
21 and 22. Remember, under the first covenant, the high priest had to go into the tabernacle or the temple, into the Holy of Holies. But under the new, we read this, after the thousand-year reign, Revelation chapter 21, verse 22 says, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by the light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought to it. Nothing impure will ever enter in, and ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. This is the point that the author's trying to instill into his readers. Sadly, he didn't have the book of Revelation to quote to his readers, as I do. It wasn't written until much later. The purity goats and bulls offered was temporary. It offered a temporary, incomplete right standing. But the purity that Messiah offers is eternal. It was offered once, only once. And those sins have been forgiven under the new covenant. And those who are under that new covenant are written in the Lamb's book of life. And notice, there's no temple. And chapter 22 says this about drawing near to God. In verses 3 through 6 it says, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. Remember that word serve can also mean worship. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And so the offering of Yeshua was so complete that those who accept him and the new covenant have this to look forward to. A true drawing near to God. A true worship of God. And a truly entering into this worship of God in his kingdom. The author says this in verse 18 of chapter 9. He says, this is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. And when Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to the people, he took the blood of the calves together with water, scarlet, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled a scroll and the people. Now, there's some discrepancy here, and there are some who want to make this uh, bigger point than what it is. The Torah says nothing about Moses using water or scarlet, wool, or hyssop. The fact is, some texts even add goats in there. Besides calves, it says goats, which were not used at Sinai. So it would appear that the author, who we know had a command of the Torah, we've seen that, is embellishing the text of the Torah. Hughes offers this, in his commentary, offers this explanation. He says, again, in Exodus 24, verse 7, we are told that Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. But there's no mention of the book being sprinkled by him. As, however, it was the custom under the old system for almost everything to be, to be purified with blood, it was only to be 
expected that on the day of solemn ratification of the former covenant, Moses would have sprinkled not only the altar he had built but, and the people, but also the book he had written. In any case, there is nothing unreasonable in the assumption that in this amplification of the Pentateuch narrative, the author is following a strong and approved tradition. So what here's what Hughes is saying, and I agree with it, he says that the author is following a long line of traditions regarding the giving of uh, this covenant at Mount Sinai. That not even though, even though it's not stated here, God will later require these things for purification. They're recorded in the Torah. And while not stated at Sinai, God being the same yesterday, today, and forever, must have commanded that they be used there as well, even though it's not recorded. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 20 says, He said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. And here again, we have another departure from the Torah in that the Torah says that the vessels of the tabernacle were anointed with oil, but there's no mention of them ever being sprinkled with blood. And so how do we reconcile this? Well, Josephus records something very similar, a tradition that very similar. In the book of Antiquities, he says, And when Moses had sprinkled Aaron's vestments, himself and his sons, with the blood of the beasts that were slain, and had purified them with spring waters and ointment, they became God's priest. After this manner, he did consecrate them and their garments for seven days together. He did the same to the tabernacle and the vessels belonging thereto belonging. And so this ex- explains some of this embellishment. But what's important for us is not this kind of thing, but it's what follows. And it says in verse 22, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but of the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. You know, I'll tell you something. If you're witnessing the good news to a Jewish person, there's, there's the greatest tool that you can use is just to ask him a couple of questions. I do this often. The first question being, Has he, have you led a perfect life? Have you ever transgressed God's law? And the answer, of course, if anyone's being honest, they'll say, no, I have transgressed God's law. Right? So the next question to ask him is, well then, how, do you, how, how did you atone for those transgressions? For which he'll have no answer. Or if he does, not one that's valid. They may say, well, prayer and good deeds, if they've consulted their rabbi, But the fact is, there's no basis for that in the scriptures. The Torah says this in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 10. An Israelite or any alien living among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut them off from his people. For the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. It is the blood. And the Talmud says the same thing. No matter what the rabbis say, the Talmud says this. In Yoma 5, it says, Does the laying on of hands make atonement for one? 
Does not atonement come through the blood? As it is said, for it is the blood that maketh atonement by reason of one of the life. So, because they have no method of atonement without the temple, without an offering, this can open the door for you then to witness the Messiah to them. But the author says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And the key word here that he uses is shedding. In the Greek, word he uses means exactly that, shedding of blood. But I want you to notice that it's the compound of two words. The first one meaning blood. And the second meaning to pour out. You see, if we look in the Torah, God gave the blood for atonement. But there was no atonement until the blood was sprinkled on the altar with the remaining poured out. No blood could be eaten because it was God's method of atonement. So it had to be poured out in the case of a sacrifice at the base of the altar or sprinkled on the altar. And if it was not in the tabernacle, it had to be poured out on the earth. As we read in verse 13 of chapter 17 of Leviticus, it says, Any Israelite or alien living among you who hunts an animal or a bird that may be eaten must drain its blood and cover it with the earth because the life of every creature is in the blood. And so the author is definitely working here in the book of Leviticus, but in this Passover season, we ought to consider something else. The words of our master in chapter 26 of Matthew, he says, Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the transgression of, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And so we learn this, that the blood is not for the benefit of any man. It's not for the benefit of the offer because it was poured out. Not for the priest as in parts of the sin offering that he could eat. But the blood or the life was poured out and it was for God alone. And it was because he had suffered loss through our sin. He suffered loss in that we were made in his image. And by our sin, we had profaned that image. He made us in his image, and through our sin, we had profaned his image to the world. And for that, he required a life. As Ezekiel says in chapter 18, verse 4, he says, For every living soul belongs to me. The Father as well as the Son, both alike, belong to me. And the soul who sins is the one who will die. And Paul tells us the same thing, very similar. He says in Romans chapter 6, he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Messiah Yeshua our Lord. And so understand, God commanded that all blood be poured out, and the reason was that every living thing belongs to him. The life is in the blood, and that life belongs to him, and it's for him and him alone to judge and do with it as he sees fit. And he demands a life for the transgression of his law because it renders that person to be less than what God created him to be. And that was to be in God's image. We can liken it to a master potter who makes a piece of pottery. And he puts it in the oven and while it's in the oven it's deformed. 
It's no longer what the potter intended it to be. And so the potter will take that piece of pottery and he'll break it. Why? Because he doesn't want his name to be defiled. He wants to protect his name. The only way to cleanse, to purify and forgive sin was by the blood, by a life taken. Though in the first century God required goats and bulls, before the first century, in the first covenant I mean, God required goats and bulls, the blood of goats and bulls did not take away sin, did not give the forgiveness to sin, did not offer eternal reconciliation but taught what God wanted his people to know, that there was one way of salvation. And it was through the gift of God, the gift of a life, our Lord Yeshua given for us. In other words, the sacrifices of the Torah, or we could say those offered at the tabernacle, we could say those of the first covenant were copies, shadows of a true offering. Because they weren't sufficient to make eternal atonement with God, they weren't able to allow the worshiper to truly draw near to God in the sense that we find the worshippers drawing near to God in the book of Revelation. For that would have taken a better offering. So the offerings, the Torah, and the first covenant were a shadow of what God intended. An example. And why did God need a reminder year? Did God need a reminder year after year? No. They were given to teach the people who did need a reminder year after year. But of Messiah, he says in verse 24, he says, For Messiah did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was a copy of the true one. So the author is telling us, is saying that the earthly tabernacle had to be purified and the first covenant had to be ratified with the life of animals, with with the offerings. However, the eternal tabernacle in heaven, the new and eternal covenant, would require a better offering. And while the tabernacle was a copy of the real, it didn't have the benefits of the real. It only showed, a, showed how to be in right standing in this life, right standing in the community of Israel. Its offerings gave you a copy, an example of what the heavenly would require and that was a sinless life that, as the master said, was poured out for many. The tabernacle in heaven was capable of better things, and offering there would reconcile one to the kingdom of God. Keep in mind that the tabernacle described it earlier represents the first covenant, and it offered, as I said, no eternal remedy. But now we're talking about the heavenly tabernacle and the covenant and the new covenant and Yeshua's covenant offers an eternal remedy because as Jeremiah said, God will remember their sins no more. It offers direct access to the Father again by being able to once again hear the voice of God. Verse 24 says, He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way a high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once 
At the consummation of the ages, he has been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You know something? We're here. We're, we're here. This is great because Passover is this week, next week. The very time of the year that this offering of Yeshua was made. And we're going to sit at a meal in remembrance of the very meal that he spoke those words. That Yeshua said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant which has been poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The very meal where Yeshua instituted the new covenant and three days later rose from the dead offering the same freedom from death to those who will follow him. And we have this in the mouths of many witnesses that he rose from the dead, that he ascended to the Father, accomplishing the very thing that the author speaks of here. He entered into the tabernacle once and for all, never having to leave it again. And, he offer, and the offering, that offering, and he's offering that same blessing to all who trust in him. Those who trust in him will enter as well into the true tabernacle of God. Purified and made holy as, the, as we read earlier in his kingdom. Because nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so this Passover season, as we sit down to this meal, let's rejoice because your names have been written in the book of life. There's nothing left to be done. It was done once and for all. Notice, notice that he says the end of the ages. And that would seem like the writer was expecting Messiah to come any day now, Right? But remember our ages of Jewish eschatology where the first 2,000 years were called desolation because of the flood and so forth and the fall of man. And then there was 2,000 years of Torah or instruction. During that time, the word of God was given. And finally, we came to the days of Messiah. 2,000 years where the world would come to a knowledge of Messiah. And finally, then, the Messianic kingdom for 1,000 years. So we can assume that the author saw Yeshua's coming as the end of the ages and the start of a Messianic age in which the reality of what God was, wanted to accomplish through the ages would be fulfilled through Messiah Yeshua. And we can assume here that at, by the end of the ages, he's saying that the days of Messiah... And the knowledge of Messiah going out into the world are finally here. And he says in verse 27, then he says, Just as man is destined to die once, and after that face judgment, so Messiah was sacrificed once to take away sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. When Messiah appears next... He's going to bring a complete redemption, like you just read about in the book of Revelation. Remember, our author here is comparing what Messiah did to Yom Kippur. And on the day when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies twice on Yom Kippur with offerings. First with a bull for he and his house. And the people... And then second for the house of Israel. And the people waited expectantly for his return, as for him to come out of the Holy of Holies. 
Well, Messiah has been there once, and in fact, he remains there. And in the same way, we wait expectantly for his return. We're going through the Passover Haggadahs this week where we're looking for clean ones and dirty ones because people wanted some of them, you know, whenever you uh, use a Passover Haggadah, it gets all stained with grape juice and everything. But we had some people who were going to do seders in their home, and so we're going through these Passover Haggadahs looking for clean ones. And lo and behold, in the box, there was also uh, some books that had, we had done that had the Yom Kippur liturgy in them. And one happened to be opened up to a page and I started reading and I thought, wow, this would be great for the sermon this week. Because it's about waiting for the high priest or seeing the high priest come out of the Holy of Holies. And it reads this way, and I'm going to close with it today. Like the heavenly canopy stretched over those who will dwell above was the appearance of the high priest. Like the lightning bolts emanating from the radiance of the living creatures was the appearance of the high priest. Like the fringes on the four corners of the garments was the appearance of the high priest. Like the image of a rainbow amid a cloud was the appearance of the high priest. Like the garments of light in which the creator clothed his creatures was the appearance of the high priest. Like a rose that is placed amid a precious garden was the appearance of the high priest. Like a crown that is placed on the king's forehead was the appearance of the high priest. Like the graciousness granted to a bridegroom's face was the appearance of the high priest. Like the purity placed upon the turban pure was the appearance of the high priest. Like the one who sat in concealment to plead before God, before the king, was the appearance of the high priest. Like the morning star on the east border was the appearance of the high priest. Think of that and then think of our the appearance of our Lord Yeshua. Amen?